0: Welcome to your Apple Update. I'm your host, John Sherrod, and trying something a little different with this episode. And uh, we're just going to see how this goes. And uh, first of all, I just want to say if you are listening to this episode, thank you. Um, It means a lot to me. Um, This is a passion project. You know, I've always enjoyed creating media. Mostly uh, that's taken the form of blog posts. I've been doing blogging since 2001 or so. Uh, I think the very first blog post or anything like it I ever did was I was working for the the, the college I went to uh, for their computing department. And that was how I got my start in IT work. And I've had a career mostly in IT uh, ever since and up until the present. And we had gotten one of Apple's XServe servers in. And um, we were setting it up and testing some things out with it. And I don't even remember what we ultimately wound up using it for. But one of the things that you could do with, uh, the XServe, you know, the Mac OS X server software is it had like a built-in blogging platform that you could use to, uh, I, I, you know, create a, an internet for your company or for your school or different things like that. And so just testing it out, I uh, wrote a blog entry or two just for fun. And so that was kind of the first time I ever, uh, did anything like blogging and blogging was so young then it was this new term, I still remember the first time I encountered the term blog and what is this? And it was right about that time. And um you know, and of course since then blogging had a big moment really prior to the social media revolution and blogging is still around, but um, you know, it's it's definitely a, a very different world that we're in now with Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and all sorts of other platforms. And of course podcasting became a huge thing. Uh, Apple didn't invent it, but when iTunes added podcasting in 2005, which was very early in the podcasting game, um, that just became the default um, place to find and discover podcasts and subscribe to them, and it's just, that's been a huge thing, and then of course YouTube came around, and suddenly, um, you know, anybody could create a video, and we had people becoming big creators, and so, you know, throughout that time, I was still mostly um, getting my thoughts out through blogging. And uh always wanted to do a podcast and did a podcast back in 2008, 2009 or so with a friend of mine. Um, and we had a run of, I don't know, 15 episodes or so. And um, that was a lot of fun. Um, and then I always, it was always kind of something I wanted to get back to. And of course, one of the topics I've been interested in for over 20 years at this point is Apple. And it's been a fascinating company to watch over that time, to say the least. Um, but In 2005, I went and started working for Apple, and uh, that probably sounds more exciting maybe than 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 the reality. Because the reality was that I worked in um, a couple of different retail stores uh, here in the Nashville, Tennessee area, and I don't want to diminish that at all. I just, I just, I think when somebody hears that you worked for Apple, they probably think you, you know, maybe you worked on some of the technology like the iPhone or the software, you know, that kind of thing. And the reality was that I was one of the people on the front lines, the face of Apple. Um, but that was a really interesting experience. I learned a ton. There were some great aspects to that. There were some not so great aspects to it. Um, but it was a fascinating time to work for Apple. Um, you know, at the height of the iPod popularity and of course the Mac resurgence and then the iPhone and later the iPad came out. And, um, one of the, one of the downsides of working for Apple is of course you can't really talk about Apple. Um, you can't really be a part of the Apple community in the sense that you can get online and talk about things or do a podcast like this um or get on a message board and so i had always you know closely followed apple for like i say at this point more than 20 years and reading rumor sites and you know all that sort of thing and when you're at apple you still do read those websites and watch those videos and listen to those podcasts you just can't participate in any of it yourself and um that was one of the things that I always looked forward to the most is that one day when I left Apple and went somewhere else, I'd be able to, you know, take more of a, a, an active part in the the Apple fan community. Cause I was still an Apple fan, even though I worked for Apple. And so when I left Apple in 2012, um, I started blogging about Apple, which was a lot of fun to start getting my thoughts out there and, um, had wanted to do a podcast for a while. And I'm trying to remember when I first started doing it, I'm. Uh, but my initial efforts were with uh, SoundCloud, and I would kind of record on my Mac and GarageBand and upload to SoundCloud, and podcasting was easy to consume because, again, iTunes was the de facto, the default, the de facto um, index for all podcasts out there, um, but kind of difficult to create because you had to, you know, probably needed to have some equipment, you know, a microphone. You could use the built-in microphone, but it's going to sound bad, so a microphone of some sort. Um, and then you've got to, to probably pay for hosting for the audio files because iTunes is just the index. It doesn't host the files. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, you know, podcasting was, and depending on how you're doing, it still is somewhat of a complicated process that you've got to have the right software, the right hardware, the right hosting and all that stuff, um, to be able to do it effectively. And, uh, that was kind of complicated. And then, so along comes Anchor um, a couple of years ago, I guess it's probably been around three or four years at this point. And, um, you know, they make the process a whole lot. And I'm not doing, I mean, there actually is a commercial at the beginning of this episode for anchor. Uh, this is not meant to be a commercial, but I, I couldn't recommend anchor enough because they make it dead simple. You can just, you could just use an iPhone and the anchor software and record and the hosting is free. Um, and so it's been great using that. And that, that's what really rejuvenated my podcast efforts. And so you know, I started doing a podcast called Quick Take, so if you've been subscribing to this, first of all, if you have subs- you subscribe to this podcast, I am beyond grateful to you for doing that, and I'd love to hear from you. Why do you subscribe? What do you enjoy about the show? What would you like to see more from it? You can actually, fo- you know, if you hit me up on Twitter, at JWSherrod, S-H-E-R-R-O-D, I would love to hear from you, um, and uh, hey, I'll give you a follow on Twitter if you tweet me and say, hey, I'm listening to your podcast, or I'm subscribed to your podcast, because Um, you know, I, you know, it's just, it's super encouraging to hear from people who have watched one of my videos on YouTube or listened to a podcast or read something I wrote. Um, that's super encouraging to me as a content creator. And, uh, again, this is all about, you know, the Apple experience is all about also all about the Apple community and, uh, talking to other Apple enthusiasts. So definitely again, JW share it on Twitter, hit me up. Would love to hear from you, but I started doing the idea I had was that, um, you know, I, you know, John Gruber is sort of the, uh, the, um, the guy everyone probably wants to emulate if you're writing about Apple or podcasting about Apple. And, uh, he does this regular podcast called the talk show, um, which, you know, is often two or three hours on a kind of semi-regular basis. Um, you know, where he's talking about Apple in a very casual way. And, and uh, well, I love it because I love his, he's very insightful and I love listening to him and his guests. Um, It's it's also a little frustrating because there's a lot of other podcasts I subscribe to and it's a lot of times it's difficult to get through my full podcast subscription slate in a week. So I had this idea, well, let me make a podcast that's as short as possible um, and more edited. And, you know, I was a journalism major at college and Of course, newspaper journalist, it's all about being concise and using as few characters as possible and getting right to the point. And, uh, you know, so I had that background. So I thought, well, let me do a podcast that is um, very short form and gets right to the point so that you can listen to that and get on with the other podcast you're listening to. Um, And uh, the reality is it's very difficult to do that. It's a lot easier to rant and take your time and, um, and, and just let the episode go where it will than it is to... Um, try to edit yourself and be as concise as possible. So um, I, you know, that's another thing I'd love to hear from you. Would you prefer shorter episodes or longer ones? Um, And so in the middle of all this um, earlier this year, I got the idea of wanting to try my hand at making a YouTube channel and was inspired by a lot of, you know, great YouTubers out there, MKBHD and Renee Ritchie what he's built with his Vector podcast, um, and a lot of other non-Apple related stuff as well. I, I consume a lot of podcast, excuse me, a lot of YouTube content as well. Um, I probably easily as much time, I probably spend as much time watching YouTube as I do conventional television. Um, you know, right through the Apple TV, uh, YouTube app is usually where I do it. And, uh, so I started doing that, and and I think the goal there, because it's more of what the format is on YouTube. Of course, there are long videos on YouTube, um, but you know the YouTube creator space it tends to be shorter uh, videos that are more to the point. And I think people have short attention spans, especially when you're watching video content. So I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, a lot of times I'll be scrolling through YouTube, and I'll be way more interested in watching a five minute video on something than I will a 15 minute or longer video. And I don't know if everybody's like that, but to me, it just makes, um, it's just more appropriate to the format. So, um, so with my YouTube channel, I do try to be as concise as possible. And, um, and again, that's a challenge, but that's kind of the goal that I'm trying to hit there. So, you know, the other thing too, what I was doing uh, for a while, once I started the YouTube channel is I was just taking the audio from that and bringing it over into this podcast, uh, format. And, um, that's kind of cheating a little bit for one thing, because, you know, it's, it's not making anything specifically for the audio audience. Um, it's just taking the audio from the YouTube video, but it, but that's also, again, maybe not as appropriate also because, you know, people that listen to podcasts have different expectations than people that watch a YouTube video. And, you know, like on YouTube, it's very common to have like background music playing like a bed of music throughout the whole video. And while that does sometimes happen in podcasts, it's definitely not the norm. So um, I, you know, I had this worry that it it would probably feel weird if you're listening to something, it would be obvious that it was kind of intended for YouTube. And so that didn't really sit right with me. Um, I can't promise I won't go back to that, but I've been kind of thinking that um, it might be interesting to, you know, cause I, I typically do my videos on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And it might be interesting to do like a Friday audio podcast, you know, recorded specifically just audio, no video, not for YouTube, just for podcasts, audio podcasts, um, to take my time a little more. So it's it's kind of funny. It's the antithesis of the old quick take format that I had originally envisioned my podcast having, but maybe take my time, talk about uh, the news of the week and just kind of sum it up. Um, This is your Apple update after all, so kind of updating you on what's going on with Apple, um, and, uh, and I also had this idea for, um, a format that easily could be its own podcast that who knows might happen at some point, but, you know, where I do a segment maybe at the end of the episode on, you know, what I've been watching on, uh, on my Apple TV. And, uh, you know, especially now that Apple is later this year coming out with their own Netflix-like or HBO-like streaming service. Uh, I thought that might be kind of an interesting thing to add as a show segment. So, I do plan to do that toward the end, so we'll see. Um, we'll see how that goes. But anyway, think of this as like a pilot, like a test thing to see what people think and to see if I like doing it. Even so, again, hit me up on Twitter at JW Sheridan and let me know what your thoughts are. But of course, um, you know, this week the biggest news, and this is not only the biggest news of the week, but you know, uh, you know, arguably the biggest Apple news of the last several years is that uh, Johnny Ive. Is leaving Apple. Um, it's not he hasn't left Apple, at least not officially. Although, I'm sure he has all but left Apple. But the announcement came in uh, yesterday, and it's surprising in the sense that no one expected it to drop yesterday. Um, not super surprising to us who watch Apple closely, because um, there had been a lot of signs. The way that they that that Johnny Ive had been talked about by Apple, the way that Johnny Ive had talked about. His job at Apple interviews, just some signs that he was not going to be at Apple forever, um, and uh, that he would eventually leave Apple to do other things. You know, he's from England; uh, he has family there. Uh, maybe he would go back to England at least part of the time, and that's something that's difficult to do when you're when you have a high level, super important job at a company like Apple, which is based in California um, or maybe he would just work on other things because Johnny, I have his, you know, there have been times uh, throughout the years where he has done a one-off design for something, um, not Apple related. Like he designed a Leica camera, um, a few years ago and, um, um, he designed like a desk or something like that, you know, something that wasn't, you know, traditionally an Apple, a product that Apple was likely to go into. Um, so, you know, I wasn't surprised that he was leaving. It was just surprising. It was one of those things when I saw the I think it was Mac rumors because I have them on uh, notifications on Twitter, so that's a you know, quick way to find out what's going on in the world of Apple, like at, at any given time if something's there if there's breaking news. Um and so when that when that came up in my notifications, I was like, Whoa, you know, this is this is big. And it is big because, you know, Steve Jobs is the most important figure in the history of Apple and arguably the most or one of the most important figures in the history of personal computing and you know had such an influence at Apple in the world of music, uh with the iPod and iTunes, um, you know, pop culture, Steve Jobs is 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 a name that everybody knows. Now Johnny Ive is not a name that everybody knows. He's definitely a name that everybody who uh follows Apple, even um uh, even even if you're not a super close apple fan, but you're you you know you're generally aware of things more than the average person anyway, you'll have heard of Johnny Ive, but whether you've heard his name or not, you've certainly used his products and have seen his work uh for the last almost three decades, particularly when Steve Jobs came back to Apple uh after a decade plus absence where Steve Jobs had gone off and founded Pixar and next Computer and then Apple bought next and Steve Jobs came along and eventually became the CEO. Well, when Steve Jobs got back to Apple, Johnny Ive was already there, so Steve didn't hire Johnny into Apple. He was already there when Steve came back, and it was kind of like uh, Steve finding a diamond in the rough. And for whatever reason, they were um, they, they worked very well together. You know, compatible personalities, compatible visions, um, and uh, collaborated to make some of the greatest products of the late 20, 20th, early 21st century. And this, I mean, the kind of things that will be in design textbooks and even just normal looking back at the history of this time period, you know, Dieter Rams and um, Johnny Ive will probably be the two most well-known designers of, not just technology, but designers in general uh, of the 20th and early 21st century. So you cannot overstate the importance that Johnny Ive has had to Apple, um, in the last 25 years. Um, and so it is a big deal that he's leaving. Um, and you know, again, why he's leaving? Well, he's, he's starting his own design studio in Southern California with his friend, Mark Newsom, Um, and, uh, they've collaborated together in the past, both inside and outside of Apple. So not surprising that they'd be teaming up and Apple announced that Johnny's design uh, studio would have Apple as a client and it's kind of hard to tell right now this close to the event um, whether or not that's real or if that's more a way to assure investors and Apple enthusiasts that you know the sky is not falling and um, I don't know I kind of think there maybe is something to it that, that Johnny Ive will consult um, certainly he's leaving behind a team that he built and hand-picked in Apple's in-house design studio so, um, I wouldn't necessarily expect, uh, Apple to totally change everything they're doing with respect to their, uh, hardware design uh, and software design, particularly hardware design. Um, I don't think it's going to change overnight. Of course, having, you know, new people in charge of that process means that at some point there will be noticeable changes. Um, they might be good changes. there might be bad changes. It might be a mix of both. And that's most likely what it'll be. I don't see, uh, you know, Apple suddenly, you know, making commodity, cheap looking, uh, technology products like you see from a lot of the generic PC and smartphone vendors out there. I think Apple will continue to make, uh, industry leading designs and, um, you know, with, you know, great materials and just well thought out functionality and that sort of thing. I don't, you know, I don't think Apple's gonna drop the baton on that, but, um, it'll be different for sure. And, um, um, in ways that could be bad, but could be good. You know, you know, Johnny Ive, uh, his, you know, really was a big believer in minimalism, arguably to a fault. You know, there's a lot of people out there who, uh, you know, um, well, there's a lot of people that certainly love the minimalism and in general, I'm one of them. I love the simplicity and the, um, the thinness and lightness of Apple products, but, you know, the, Apple has had a lot of detractors over the years and in recent years in particular. And the argument goes something like, um, you know, uh, that the focus is the, the balance. The focus on minimalism is out of balance with the needs of practicality. And um, especially if you look at the, uh, the keyboard gate issue where, um, you know, the, the keyboards on the uh, late 2016 uh, up until the present MacBook Pros, Uh, There's been a higher failure rate of keys than ever before in Apple's history. Um, And, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, that's just Johnny Ive wanting to shave one more millimeter off the design where, you know, you go for a a key design that uh, emphasizes, um, you know, again, that super thin light mentality at the expense of reliability. It's hard to say. There may be something to that. Um, so if, if you're one of those people, then it's entirely possible that whoever, whatever vision kind of takes over moves Apple in, in a direction that's not quite so severe. I think they'll always want to, uh, you know, I don't see them going away from a minimalist design, but perhaps they'll bring a little more balance into the practicality, um, minimalism spectrum there, if you will. So that's certainly one way that, that we could see uh, things changing. Um, but we're really going to have to wait and see, and it may be years down the road before we really see the new Apple design vision taking shape. Um, we also—it's also hard to say exactly how much Johnny Ive has been uh, involved in the day-to-day design decision-making process at Apple. There's been a lot of people, and and it's only been—it's been just over 24 hours since this news broke, and there's been so much discussion and people giving their opinions. And of course I'm one of them, but, um, you know, some, some talk that maybe Johnny has really had a foot out the door for a long time. And of course he's certainly been very focused on Apple park, Apple's new spaceship looking headquarters, um, that has been in progress for a long time because Steve jobs has now, uh, we, you know, we lost him almost eight years ago at this point. And, uh, Of course, you know, if you think back to that video of Steve Jobs standing in front of the Cupertino City Council talking about his plans and trying to get uh, zoning approval for the new campus, it's been in progress for a long time. And Johnny Ive has been instrumental in the design and that will be um, the most permanent uh, design uh, for his legacy because, you know, an iPhone design is gone in a couple of years and not for sale anymore but you know Apple's campus will be there for you know 100 years or more so uh he certainly left a mark in that but um you know it's you know there certainly some people have speculated that he really hasn't been there um as part of the day-to-day design process with the intensity uh that he had been before that project started and before the uh, the early passing of Steve Jobs so you know, again, we're going to have to wait and see, and it's going to be a long time before we really know the full effects of uh, Johnny Ive leaving. But, you know, certainly a little, sa- a little sad. It's bittersweet. And I say bittersweet, it's certainly sad because he's been just a huge influence over the the look of Apple's products and the, the way they work and just everything about the physical manifestation of Apple's products, and even in recent years, the software design. Um, but it also provides new opportunities for new people to influence that and for uh, potentially some of the things that some people don't like about Apple's design to uh, to change. So we'll see. It's going to be an interesting, it's always going to be an interesting next few years anyway, but this just adds to what makes it interesting. The other thing I wanted to, to talk about is kind of another main segment of the show this week is, is iPad, and um, especially in light of all the announcements that were made, at uh, WWDC this year, which has been a few weeks ago now, at the beginning of the month. We're now right at the end of June. And, um, you know, first of all, just a little history of me with the iPad. I have been a huge fan of the iPad uh, since even before it launched, because I remember going back to 2009, you know, the iPad launched in 2010, and toward the end of 2009, there were all these rumors and that uh, that Apple was coming out with. A tablet of some sort, and nobody knew what to call it, even as a category, because there was really nothing uh, like it. Of course, uh, Microsoft had really dabbled into tablet computers, um, you know, back in the early 2000s, and they were basically, you know, laptops where you could flip the screen around and use a stylus, and, you know, there were, you know, there was some merit to that design, but um, not a great experience. Of course, Apple had had the Newton back in the 90s, which was not a successful product, but certainly was sort of a product ahead of its time because you saw a lot of the elements, uh, even some very specific callbacks in the design of the early versions of iOS back to some of the Newton uh, interface designs. And of course, there'd been the Palm Pilot and a lot of those things got uh, just eaten up by uh, the iPhone and and phones like it. Um, And then You know, there's all these rumors, again, that Apple's working on this tablet device. Uh, The word slate was thrown around a lot. And uh, you had other companies like like trying to beat Apple to the punch and working on similar things. And uh, and then, you know, and so I remember that time and, you know, I was working in in Apple retail, as I mentioned at that time. And and customers, customers hear about Apple rumors because they get reported in mainstream press, even if you're not going to MacRumors.com every day. The Wall Street Journal is going to comment about these kind of things. And so I had customers asking about it and they just they couldn't get their heads around it. And, and of course, to be fair to them, Apple hadn't announced it or put their their context or expressed their vision for what it would be like. But, you know, it was kind of like, well, it's just a big iPhone, right? What's the big deal? And uh, I was like, it's it's a big iPhone. That's incredible, because imagine what you can do with that canvas. And so I was pretty dang excited about that idea uh, even before Apple officially announced it. And then the announcement day came and I remember that day well. It was um uh it was uh gosh, I'm gonna get this wrong at looking it up. I believe it was in January of twenty ten, uh, when Apple announced it and um a friend of mine, a coworker from Apple came over and we watched the day. Apple was live streaming it and we watched the event. Oh no, I don't think they were live streaming it. I think what was happening was um they there were, you know, websites doing um, you know, live blogging, which is a big thing back then because Apple wasn't doing a lot of live streams. And then I think, um, maybe, uh, Leo Laporte with this week in tech was, was like streaming a, a, a stream right from inside the conference center where Apple was announcing it. And so that we had that pulled up for a while. Um, but that was a really exciting announcement. That was at, it was again, toward the end of Steve jobs, career and his, at Apple, um, was his health was declining, but, uh, you know, he, famously sat in the chair to, to really set the tone for what the experience of using an iPad would be like and uh and I was hooked and even at those early at that I believe at that very first introduction to the iPad they even were showing off pages and numbers and keynote and and you know you you know talking about how this really having a device this size running iOS really opens up the door for a lot of uh, productivity applications and they you know They had that kind of weird. uh, It was it was just the the standard Apple Bluetooth keyboard, but with like an iPhone dock bolted onto it, that you could set the iPad in in portrait mode only, and use for uh, and use to type on. And uh, you know, so that was very crude compared to certainly compared to where we are now with the iPad. But um, it was uh, you know it was a very inspiring presentation because it really. Gave a glimmer of the potential, and then early after that, and there was, a, I believe, it was at the All Things D conference where Steve Jobs was asked about it, and um, uh, he he gave the analogy of the iPad as the family sedan, and a traditional PC like a Mac or a Windows computer uh, would be more like the the truck that you have that you use for uh, you know the occasional infrequent heavy duty tasks that the family sedan uh, is an ideal suited for or can't do, um, and that was I. Again, I caught the vision for that. I thought that made a lot of sense, and the iPad was a huge hit. I mean, they sold tons and tons of them. Again, just like with the iPhone, not as not to the scale of the iPhone, but like the iPhone in the sense that it really uh, created or at least revolutionized an industry. Not to say there weren't things, uh, at least roughly like the iPad before, but totally totally changed the industry, and and you had copycat devices coming out from uh, lots of other manufacturers. Um, And, um, it was exciting. I had the first iPad and the, the Apple case with the fold around thing, which that's become kind of a, a staple of the iPad, the Apple iPad case designs ever since then. And, um, and, um, again, you know, Apple sold a ton of them and they were very successful for a while. And then the curve went down and it was, it was, it really was almost like, um, I don't want to say a fad because they still continue to sell a ton of them. Millions and millions of them, but you could see the you know the growth curve got to the top and then it went down, and it was kind of declining for a long time. And um, uh, there wasn't, and, and then we went through a, a stretch where, you know, Apple continued to put out new iPad hardware designs, and um, but it was almost like the vision was lost, even within Apple for the iPad. And, and I have to admit that even I lost the vision a little bit. I had that original iPad and then i got um the third generation ipad which was not a very well remembered ipad because it was it had a retina display which was awesome but it was very uh it was very heavy uh, cuz it had to have that larger battery to drive that large retina display and um uh and then i had an ipad mini and so i you know i've always had an ipad in my life and i use them at work as well uh but it was really uh ios 11 that kind of reinvigorated the ipad and really reenergized me uh, in my love for the iPad, uh, because, you know, that was the first time in a long time where, um, a lot of very specific attention was placed on the iPad in terms of what, how, how do you, how do you really optimize iOS for an iPad form factor? And we got things like slide over and we got things like, uh, having multiple apps up at a time with the, the kind of split window, split app view, um, on the screen. We got, the. Um, we got the Files app, um, and uh, it was you know it was a big deal, and that uh, was a really exciting time to be an iPad user. Um, not a whole lot of change last year, but then this year again it was huge. You know, actually let me back up a little bit because a couple things happened. You know, Apple introduced the iPad Pro a few years ago. We got uh, a twelve point nine inch iPad. Um, we then eventually got a ten and a half inch iPad Pro. And then uh, last year we got the 11 inch and the 12.9. So they've kind of settled that size. The iPad got uh, iPhone 10 style um, uh, gestures, you know, losing the home button. And crucially, the iPad Pro got a USB-C port and not a lightning port. And that opened up the doors for all sorts of more traditionally computer accessories. So you didn't have to get a lightning adapter if you had uh USB-C um, devices and adapters and things like that, it was a lot easier to connect those to an iPad. And then this year at WWDC uh, was was uh, the biggest thing for the iPad software-wise since iOS 11, uh, which was A, we got renaming iOS iPadOS for the iPad. And you might think, well, that's just marketing. And, you know, it is marketing, but it's also a recognition that the iPad uh, has, you know, specific Uh, things about it that you have to be aware of and, uh, you know, uh, do do software design around to uh, make the product as good as it can be, because there's a sense in which the Apple watch and the Apple TV also run iOS, but they have distinct names because the distinct form factors uh, mean different uh, software design choices and software features are included. And, um, so I, I thought that was huge. It also means we're going to get iPad specific updates every year at WWDC, uh, which is exciting. And we got some incredible new features. We got, um, desktop class web browsing, which is a huge deal, um, because there's not an app for everything. Um, you know, I think Apple would like to be, and I'd like there to be as well, but there's not an app for everything. And the, uh, the, 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 um, uh, you know, web browsing story was kind of rough, uh, for the iPad for most of its history because um, you, you didn't have real desktop class um, websites. you know, a lot of websites would default to a mobile view that was really more designed for an iPhone size screen. Um, and uh, you know, you know, if it did mount the desktop version of the website, it didn't work properly as you would expect it to. So having real desktop class web browsing that is nonetheless still, Optimized for an iPad interface is, is pretty amazing, um, and then the Files app got some incredible updates, including column view, which is a lot like the column view in the Finder. So you get an easier way to navigate through the hierarchy of your files and folders. But you also get um, you know a panel that shows uh, metadata. You have things like Quick Look. Um, you can now mount USB drives and access files on those, which has been you know something that people had wanted to see for a long time. And, um, you also got, uh, the ability to have uh, contextual menus just by doing a long press on an item, uh, just about anywhere in the iPad, you get this, the, basically the equivalent of right clicking on a Mac, uh, which is, uh, just going to open the door for a whole lot of interesting things. So, um, you know, absolutely, uh, super exciting time to be an iPad user. So I was already uh, very enthusiastic about the iPad and the potential future for the iPad, um, which just accelerated uh, with the introduction of the iPad Pro and with all the new features introduced in iOS 11 a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, all the announcements at WWDC this year with iPadOS just, um, you know, made that go even more. So, um, but really for the last couple of years, I've been, um, you know, really testing the idea of you know, really being able to, you know, have the iPad be my main computer platform because it's always been the case that the Mac has been the main computer platform, and then you've got, well, at least, at least from a productivity standpoint. I mean, really, if we're honest, the iPhone is the probably the most important computing device that any of us carry around because it's the one that we have always with us, and it's the one that we use for the most things. But from like a, you know, what are you getting your work done on kind of standpoint, um, it's always been the Mac. But then in the last couple of years, it's sort of been, you know, you know, could it really be the iPad? And I I really want it to be. And, and, you know, I've been thinking about this. What is it exactly about the iPad experience that draws me in, particularly in light of the limitations that it has compared to the Mac? Because there's no question that right now the Mac is way more powerful, way more um, powerful in terms of even just simple interface elements how you interact with things Um, but what is it about the ipad that i feel so compelling and i think it's just that um being a touch a touch-based user interface makes it super immersive uh uh, you know there is something about using uh, a mouse that is a little bit like driving a car with a remote control and a touch interface is like getting behind the wheel and driving it yourself there is just something super immersive about Manipulating things uh, as directly as it can be when there's still a pane of glass between you and the 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 object that's being made manifest on the screen, but I do find that super compelling, and I think it for those of us who are uh, big ipad fans it it makes us willing to put up with the the productivity uh, shortcomings that the ipad um, has had and, and even still has you know I've kind of made the analogy in the past that um, using an ipad. Compared to a Mac, for especially for work tasks and productivity tasks, is uh, a, a lot like you know being at the beach. You can run really fast on the beach, but then you get out in the water, and if you try running in waist deep water, um, it's difficult, it's slow, and it's tiring. And that's a little bit about what using an iPad for that kind of work has been. And I feel like uh, the changes with iPad OS 13 that was announced this year, uh, it's like draining the pool. It's more like now you're running in knee deep water. Um, and so you still have a lot of challenges. The Mac is still going to be faster to get things done. Um, but Apple's again, draining that water down. So it's more, you, you can be faster and you're not going to get tired out as much. And I think that's the best analogy I can think of for, um, what it's like. And so, um, it's been really, I can't wait to see what developers do with multi-window support, um, with all these new tools, um, in the, uh, new files app, uh with dark mode. Um it's gonna be really it's gonna really soar. I mean you can download the the beta and I have the beta running on my iPad right now, but it's gonna be super exciting once developers um release apps that fully support all these new features and I can't wait to see how that kind of revolutionizes things. And um you know it's funny I do all my um um I'm doing this podcast to the anchor app right on my iPad. I've got a, a blue snowball microphone connected via usb cable into the apple multi-port adapter which is connected to the ipad's USB-C port and uh, i do my youtube videos that way i actually just use the built-in camera and the ipad and i use this uh, snowball microphone to get better audio than i would just through the built-in microphone um but um I, I and i then i do um you know all the publishing and promotion on here i use keynote for ios to Design the uh, thumbnail for the YouTube. I actually initially created a template on the Mac, but I've been doing it all on the iPad uh, the last several times I've done it. And um, you know, one of the things that disappointed me initially about trying to do that is that I wanted to use iMovie, and part of that is because I don't want to spend um, really any money on this right now, and so I didn't want to invest in uh, a paid app for doing video editing like for the YouTube channel. And so I wanted to use iMovie, and was you know, uh, a little surprised, especially in light of, um, the, uh, the, the richness of more desktop class features that Apple announced at, at WWDC. I was a little surprised by how limiting, uh, iMovie was. For example, if you wanted to have, um, a photo overlaid on top of your video so that you still had the video audio playing from like my narration or me talking about a topic, but have, a photo overlaid on top of that—you couldn't do that. You could do that with another video clip, but not with a photo, and that was disheartening. And um, and then a and then uh, a week or two after WWDC, Apple dropped a whole new version of iMovie that uh, you know, gave me that specific feature—the ability to have a photo overlay on top of it. It also had um, built-in, you know, royalty-free soundtracks that auto-match the length of your um, of your video. So it made it really easy to do a YouTube style soundtrack, you know, music bed behind things. Um, and, uh, uh, just a lot of, a lot of additional features that I'm not even using, but just made it much more like the Mac version of iMovie and, uh, made it went from being really a terrible way to do a YouTube video completely on the iPad to being a, a pretty fantastic way Uh, to do it at least for basic functionality and so i've been having fun in addition to trying to get the hang of doing a youtube video and trying to be concise and short and to the point um, it's been fun to play around with um, the uh, the editing process and mixing in uh, photos and video clips and things like that and then again designing thumbnails and keynote Um, it's been really fun to kind of do that and it's really fun to do this recording all on the ipad so all that to say uh, I can't wait to see you know where the iPad continues to grow, and I'll be curious to see in 10 years if more people aren't going off to college with just an iPad and not a traditional Mac or PC, and really if people are using it at work in place of a traditional desktop computer or a traditional Mac or Windows laptop if they're using an iPad. I don't know if that's going to happen. I hope it happens, because not that I want to see the Mac go away, but I just want to see um, uh, the iPad be able to rise to be a peer of it, so... Um, really going to be interesting to see kind of where that goes, um, over the next few years. Okay. So final segment was what I talked about at the beginning with the new segment idea I had, which was to talk about what I've been watching on Apple TV. And I thought about the, the parameters for this. Um, it doesn't have to be something on Apple's Apple TV plus streaming service, cause that hasn't even launched yet. Um, But I do want it to be content that I'm accessing through the Apple TV app. And of course, Apple TV app ties in with any video services that want to participate with Apple in that process. So, you know, you can make an Apple TV video app that doesn't work with the Apple TV app. And some developers have chosen to do that. The biggest one is Netflix. So... Uh, Netflix sort of sometimes works with the TV up next queue, but is not integrated into the Apple TV app. So uh, that's not going to count. So even though I will be watching Stranger Things season three uh, later this year, um, I guess I won't be talking about it on this segment because it's not, it doesn't fit that parameters, but I'm making this up as I go along. So who knows? Um, But uh, so really anything that falls under the Apple TV app is fair game. So, um, one of the, the things that I've been uh, kind of going back through, uh, over the course of the last several months is I've been going back and rewatching the entire James Bond movie series from start to finish. Um, I've always been a huge James Bond fan, uh, grew up mostly watching, um, you know, the Roger Moore era, James Bond movies taped off of TV when those were coming on TV, uh, love all, you know, all the people that have played James Bond, um, but, uh, and of course I have some movies that I love and some bond movies that I don't love as much, but I've just always been a big fan of the franchise. My mom was a big fan and kind of got me uh, and my brother watching it. And I've just always been a fan. So, um, but I've never owned all the bond movies on any format. Um, they're expensive. Um, and really in the last four years I've done, I've moved to doing all my movie purchasing, uh, through iTunes and, uh, I have uh, kind of a system for keeping track of iTunes uh, price drops, and I should do a pot I can't remember if I've done a podcast on that topic before, but if not, I need to, or maybe a YouTube video. But at any rate, um, over uh, last Christmas holiday, um, all the James Bond movies went on super deep discount, and they don't go on discount super often. So I was like, okay, I had some some uh, Amazon gift cards, so I converted those to iTunes gift cards. And I bought the whole series, every single movie that's come out in the James Bond franchise uh, to this point. At least the official James Bond movies. And I've been going back through and re-watching them. And uh, they're all in 4K. Um, almost all of them look great, where you can tell there's been a lot of care put into the preservation and restoration of the movies, as is appropriate. And I love seeing that, particularly with older movies, where they've clearly spent a lot of money and time to make them look as good as possible. And for the most part, these James Bond movies look amazing. And so, um, last weekend, gosh, last weekend I watched, uh, and I'm watching them in order of release date. So I I was all the way up through a view to a kill, which was the last Roger Moore movie and then the living daylights and license to kill. So I watched three of them last weekend. And then earlier this week watched uh, GoldenEye, which of course, probably more people are familiar with because of the excellent video game from the late nineties, but it is, uh, an excellent James Bond film. And in fact, it's my favorite one. Uh, in the franchise and um rewatched that and had a blast watching it. If you haven't seen it or haven't seen it recently, I really recommend that movie. It is, it was directed by Martin Campbell the first time he had done a James Bond movie. And then um, he didn't direct another one until Casino Royale, which was, you know, so he went from directing the first Pierce Brosnan Bond film to taking a hiatus from the franchise and then coming back and doing the first Daniel Craig Bond film, which is my second favorite Bond movie. And so uh, he's, he is, I think a fantastic Bond director. It's a pity he's only done the two and they've been the first one to establish a new Bond actor and the rest of the movies that both of those actors did in the franchise, uh, in my opinion, just weren't nearly as good. So, um, but really enjoying going back and watching through that series. So that's what I've been watching on the Apple TV this week. So uh, that's it for this episode. Um, Again, you know, hit me up on Twitter if you've listened this far. Uh, Thank you very much, and uh, hit me up on Twitter at J.W. Sherrod. That's S-H-E-R-R-O-D. Would love to hear your feedback. Do you like this longer format for the audio podcast? Uh, Let me know, Uh, and uh, I look forward to hearing from you. That's it for your Apple update for this week. I'm your host, John Sherrod, and I'll see you next time.